Love Talk Radio. Listening to Chuck Morse Speaks Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. This is your host, Chuck Morse. Welcome to the program. We welcome to join us, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. And as is our habit on Tuesday, we're talking religion and how it intersects with politics. And to help us do that uh, is my Tuesday co-host, Deacon Mike Awanowitz from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church in Sharon. Mike, how are you? Um, well, thank you. Uh, despite the uh, particular news, you know, from last Friday and how it continues to overshadow pretty much uh, anything we can think of. Well, Mike, obviously this this is something that we have to talk about and should talk about. And, um, I, you know, I'm glad you're here because you're a theologian. You're, as a Catholic deacon, you're, you're a soldier in Christ. You know, you're an officer of the Archdiocese of Boston. So um, I want to talk about, first of all, um, the morality and the ethics of of this situation and how it relates to other situations uh, in history. And and in my view, and this is not a unique and isolated situation, it's one that has to be looked at in the context of uh, from Columbine on. We've had this phenomena where people are targeting children in schools. Mm. Young people in schools, teenagers in schools, college kids in schools, for murder. And uh, that that these are senseless, they're mass murders. And I think that this is something that is not only unique in history, and it's not just in this country either, by the way, but it's something that is more evil and more more, um, morally wrong than probably any other situation I can think of. I mean, in a way, it's worse than the Nazis. You know, the Nazis certainly, I mean, I, when I was in Poland, when I was in the Krakow, I, I, I saw sites there in which some of the worst atrocities against humanity happened. But um, the, there's a difference even between that, and that is that they were not specifically targeting children. You know, they were targeting men, women, and children. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, of course, in the real sense of it. <clears throat> right. But, and they were targeting people that they viewed as their enemies for bizarre and demented reasons. Um, you know, even Amalek in the Bible, I mean, even some of the worst, you know, pagan practices where they were throwing babies into the belly of, of, of idols and Moloch and some of the really, the, you know, disgusting and deplorable activity that went around uh, along with idol worship that the Bible only alludes to, that that it was still wasn't mass murder of children specifically. And and to my way of thinking, that makes these cases, particularly this one of Mm. last Friday, almost, you know, morally more evil than than probably any phenomena that that we can imagine. I mean, even Israel, even Palestinian suicide bombers, they're trying to kill as many Jews as they can. I mean, they blow Mm. themselves up to kill, but they're not specifically going into you know, nursery schools says, oh, there's where the children are. Let's go there so we right. can kill all the children. Do, do, do you see what I'm getting at? Well, yes, and and I think in particular, as you not just alluding to, but being very specific, that places like elementary schools or high schools in Columbine or 
when they have a situation, when I say we, when a situation occurs in that movie theater where they're uh, yes. playing Batman and all of that, looking around, there were several, as one particular uh, writer in, you know, alluded to, that there were several theaters in the particular area, and the man who went there didn't go to the nearest one, the easiest one to get to, but to one in particular where it was obvious that there were not going to be people who could defend themselves right. and looking for the innocent prey, if you will. The other thing is that interesting, as you say, going back to Columbine and what we know, <clears throat> even in skeleton form, about this particular young man who did the terrible massacre in uh, Connecticut, uh, these are not your average individuals in terms of intelligence. They come across as very bright people, basically, uh, young individuals who have the intellect and the cognitive ability to understand, quote, right from wrong, and what they certainly know exactly what's going to be the implications of what they're doing. And given that, then they go ahead to do the unthinkable. That's like... Well, you're right. I mean, there are patterns. And I think that, uh, Mike, what you're getting at here is how to look at this situation. We should look at this situation as a society, and our government should look at this situation scientifically, like we would analyze any phenomena. Our social scientists should be examining this, our psychologists, sociologists, uh, you know, anthropologists, whatever. And, and it's it's sort of like the way the government looks at when there's a train wreck or when there's a plane crash. You know, when there's a plane crash, a big plane crash, the government, the, the Federal Aviation Administration does a complete investigation of what happened. They look at, you know, whether or not the plane had stress on, on its parts. They look at the design issues, how it was built. They look at everything so they can learn. They can learn what they can do in the future to reduce this from happening. And they do learn. You know, there, there are changes. Like, for example, there was a plane crash in 2000 and I think it was in 2003, and the result was that now all planes have this extra structures put on the top of the plane <laughs> right. to, to, to reduce stress from, uh, from the above. You know, I mean, we could go back to the Coconut Grove fire in Boston in 1942 right. when, when something like 400 people were burned to death because the doors could not be opened out. They were only opened in, and what happened was that the heat of the fire sucked out the oxygen and the panic that ensued people were were pushed against the door, and they couldn't get the doors open. So mm -hmm. since then, yeah. now all building codes are such that buildings have to be built in such a way that the doors go out, mm -hmm. and that has saved lives. So we have to take a look at this phenomena in that way. We have to look at it dispassionately and actually look at exactly what this is. Mm -hmm. Who are these people that are doing this? Mm -hmm. What do they have in common because this is new. This is not something that happened before. It's not that there was never violence in school before. There might have been there the occasional fist fight. There may have even been somebody who brought a knife to school, maybe. maybe. But I don't think anybody was ever murdered in school before. Um, you know, we had the isolated situation in the early 60s where a man crawled up to the top of a tower uh, right. <clears throat> in, With uh, a rifle, at the University yeah. of Texas and started shooting people randomly. But that was isolated. That wasn't, I mean, what we're talking about here is an epidemic. And uh, my good friend Sam Blumenfeld, who's a regular guest on this program, has written a column that I've posted on, on, on the show's blog site 
where he simply documents all of these cases, starting with Columbine, which was the big one. That was the first major murder, mass murder. And he shows that these things are happening every single year now, and not just in the United States either. There are cases in Canada. There are cases in Canada. There's a couple of cases in Finland, you know, and a couple of other European countries. And, and, and we have to take a look. So this is a new problem. It is an epidemic by conventional medical definitions. And, and we have to take a look at exactly what is going on both with these people and what is going on to the degree anything is in our, perhaps in our education system and in our society that would set the stage for this particular change. That's right. The, uh, <clears throat> as you indicate, <clears throat> forensic evidence uh, is always looked at in terms of, say, a uh, auto, automobile uh, crash, a plane crash, a building burning down, or uh, explosions. Anything with is physical evidence, we have right. the ability to find out what was happening prior to the event, what led up to it, and how to take precautions to ensure that it might not happen again. Uh, and you're right, human behavior is difficult to understand uh, in the present sense, even more difficult to understand in the sense of what might happen tomorrow uh, with human beings doing what they do. But there are indicators, and I think we do have enough, as you say, psychological support, sociological support. Um, yeah, this is like you want to have a Manhattan Project and say, go find out what's going on. Uh, exactly. Where are the red flags? Now, Mike, do you have any particular insights? I mean, I have a couple of things that, um, from a relatively unscientific standpoint, uh, I've observed, and they are things that are fairly well documented. And one of those things is the fact that from Columbine to this case, and I don't know if it's true in this case, but I would be willing to bet it is, every single one of these people were on a psychological drug prescribed by a psychiatrist. Uh, okay. I, I, I didn't have that particular, uh, you know, tracings of the situation, but that's... Uh... Right. I mean, it's documented. I mean, probably yeah, right. I think eight or nine out of ten of these people, <clears throat> okay. right. they've been on child Prozac, they've been on uh, Ritalin, mm -hmm. they've been on some kind of a um, this phenomena, which it's only in recent, only starting in the 1990s, did you have this phenomena of these sorts of drugs being prescribed for people, mm -hmm. whereas before they weren't, either for depression or hyperactivity. Mm -hmm. right. And and right. I think that this is a bigger problem than simply these sensational cases. Like, for example, there was a case, I don't know if you remember this, it was maybe four or five years ago up in Beverly where this young man, I think he was probably maybe college age, I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. high school age, he murdered his girlfriend, and in the course of the trial his defense was that he was taking Ritalin and that he was coming off of the Ritalin and that it affected him. Right. And, and I think that there's a lot of that going on that is not widely reported mm. because it's it's smaller. It's not it's a local story. It's not a national story. <laughs> and, and I think right. that that has to be viewed as part of it. And and maybe one of the particular evidences of this mm. simply is that if you read the uh, bottle, you know, if you read the disclaimers right, right. on these <clears throat> drugs, I mean, yeah, yeah, they tell you flat out that um, do not either go off of them too quickly, go off of them under medical supervision, or watch for this, that, and the other thing. 
and, and, one, and they say it, it could lead to homicidal or suicidal tendencies. So Yeah, I don't have any insight, as you say, into a particular situation like that, but just in general, I think the um, uh, prescribing of <clears throat> anti-psychotic drugs uh, to people with, um, you know, treating, they need to be treated, but... Uh, right. Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't situations where maybe those are appropriate, but uh, I, I'm simply pointing out that we should consider the possibility that these drugs are being prescribed a little too loosely. You know, they're a little too they're they're brought in a little too quickly <clears throat> yeah, to right. deal with situations that are are probably dealt with maybe through better nutrition, maybe through therapy. You know, maybe through other means. I mean, you know, people, young, particularly boys, are being prescribed this drug because they're they're hyperactive in school. Well, guess what? That's natural for most boys. You know, right. I was right. hyperactive in school. I mean, that's well, maybe in this day and age, if I was that age, they would have put me on Ritalin. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like these are not. This isn't a psychological problem. It's just how boys are mm. at a certain age. Most, not all, but many. You know, they have extra energy. They're fidgety. They 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 act out a little bit, you know. They've got, uh, you know, they 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 get a little hyper. It's part of growing up. It's not. It's normal. It's not something that, you know. Now what they do is they have therapists give them sedatives, and you know they put them on these these mind altering drugs. I mean, it's it's not. It, it there's something that appears. And I'm, again, I'm getting into the scientific mm -hmm. side of this. It, 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 there's something very wrong about that. Mm -hmm. I think. And I would urge parents in two ways. First of all, I want to say two things as a disclaimer if you're listening to this program. Number one, be very, very wary if, if, if you're being told that you should put your son or daughter on a, on a controlled substance. Look into it as a last resort. Try to examine what kind of nutrition they're getting, what kind of you know, any other approach. And secondly, if you have a son or daughter who is presently on any of these substances, do not just take them off of it. Do it under, if you want to do it, and I would urge you to consider doing so, do it under medical supervision and do it gradually because, you know, part of the problem with these drugs, and if you look at their fine print again, is that if you do something too swiftly or if you make a big change, it could lead to major mood swings, and that you do not want. You want to have a gradual transition. So I just want to put in that, that disclaimer, yeah. Mike. <clears throat> well, that also applies, for example, um, by analogy, if someone, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if somebody uh, drinks a lot of coffee, for example, four or five cups, you know, in the morning or something in the afternoon, and they're a right. coffee, uh, <laughs> habitually drinking a lot of coffee, and all of a sudden, right. the next day, they just, for the next 24 hours, do not drink any coffee, uh, that gets another, you know, uh, yeah. behavioral issue. They 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 kind of go off, as you say, too quickly. And whether it be yeah, smoking or anything, stopping quickly what you're doing uh, can have adverse consequences. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. you build up a certain physical and and maybe even psychological um, amenity to it. And uh, right. you know, I mean, I used to drink a lot of coffee, and I no longer drink it. And I remember. When I stopped drinking mm. it, I didn't feel good for quite a few days. I mean, I, right. and I felt headachy, and, you know, you don't feel right. Right, yeah, headaches. You know, yeah, and then afterwards I felt a whole lot better. But the point is there was a withdrawal. Mm. You know, this is uh, any time you, you, you change a habit, 
you know, you're going to feel some possibly some physical and even even emotional or psychological side effects from that. So, and especially younger people, you know, we're talking about teenagers here who are no who are not physically and mentally fully developed yet who are who are being given these substances. It's particularly insidious, you know, it's sort of like giving a kid booze. Mm. You know, right. you're giving them, I mean, it's one thing if you're in your 40s and right. your body is fully developed. You can handle these things if you need to. But when you're talking about a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old or even an early 20s, you know, we're talking about someone who hasn't fully physically developed yet. And, you know, you know, they're particularly vulnerable to the effects of these things. I mean, it's just obvious. I mean, I think that's scientific. <clears throat> sure. And the, the, the neuroscience indicates that what, what they call the executive function of the brain, uh, it takes a while into, as you say, the, the 20-year-olds and so forth, before that executive function, which means how to make good, rational, logical decisions, right. uh, is not fully developed. Exactly. I mean, you don't give your teenage son a bottle of whiskey and the car keys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Michael yeah. Wanowitz is my guest. You're welcome mm. to join the discussion. Um, we've had callers, by the way, Mike. So, oh, great. So, you know, over this week, three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine is the number if you'd like to join us. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. We're talking about the the Connecticut slaughter um, and what happened. Um, Mike, there, there's a, I don't know if you've heard about, and this is sort of making the buzz, this is buzzing around in the wonderful world of talk radio right now, but uh, Mike Huckabee, who has a TV show on Fox News, okay. has gone on the record as saying that he believes, and again, I don't agree with the simplicity of this, it's a complicated mm. question, but I think he's, he's onto something when he says that, that part of the responsibility of this phenomena is that uh, the government has stripped God out of schools. <clears throat> there is no more yeah. spiritual side of things. There's no more, um, right. you know, belief in a creator of the universe. Everything is distilled down to, um, you know, just material existence, uh, you know, just uh, satisfying the, the, right. the presence. Yeah. And, and you being a theologian, I thought maybe you might have some opinions on that. Well, again, it, it, it is <clears throat> uh, simplistic to say, and I saw something, you know, it said uh, a particular kind of uh, take on this. It wasn't Huckabee, but, you know, other people have been saying, look, when people say, oh, God, why did you let this happen in this particular classroom? And then God says, but they shut me out of the classroom. It's that kind of take. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's where Huckabee is coming from or using a variation on that particular theme. But again, it is simplistic. It defies, I think, major, solid, good theological understanding of who God is and how God is involved and has been involved in the interplay with humans over hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, And, you know, we can't look around and say, oh, here's that hurricane. Maybe God can stop the hurricane or oh, gosh, look at what happened, and maybe God is punishing people. Uh, this is not the way that we understand who our God is, at least from you know, Judeo-Christian understandings and so forth. So I think when we get too simplistic and say, well, if only we were able to have daily prayer in the morning, 
Well, you know, I don't think that's necessarily going to be an antidote either, although it might be a good thing to do. Um, so it's just uh, it's too simplistic. And um, I, agree, I, I agree it's simplistic. I mean, you've brought up two issues here, and they're both interesting. Firstly, the issue of whether or not God, you know, the stripping of, of faith from schools has something to do with this. It is simplistic to simply say it's any one thing. But I think that Huckabee is onto something. I mean, I do think that um, our secularization, our de-Christianizing of our culture, particularly amongst young people, I, I don't think that's been healthy. You know, I think that um, there is something that is healthy about um, a recognition of the divine. I, I'm not in favor of school prayer um, because I, because as a Jew, I don't I pray differently than a Christian and. You know, people pray differently, and I think the place for that is at a place of worship. But nevertheless, um, you know, this idea that you cannot mention anything to do with God, you can't mention the divine creator, you can't mention the Bible at all, you know, it, it, it does seem to have turned the school into a, um, a, a sort of a, a materialistic, secular uh, place. And it's, it, it's sort of out of whack with... Um, with the realities of of our traditions and also with reality in general, which is that there is a spiritual side of our existence. But the issue of whether or not God plays a role in these sorts of atrocities, that's a question that you as a theologian have a lot better of a handle on. I think that's something that everyone struggles with. I mean, I know that I remember when um, I was at um, the radio station in, in, in Norfolk, um, the manager there said to me, he was listening to one of my programs where we were talking about faith, mm-hmm. and he said, I don't have any faith because I came from a country that was hit by an earthquake and it killed mm-hmm. a lot of people. <clears throat> and um, how can mm-hmm. God, if, if there is a God, how can God do that? Why would he kill all of these innocent people and destroy right. all of these lives? And and I actually don't quite know how to answer that. Yeah, that's that's that famous uh, idea of again, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, the, right. the famous book by uh, Rabbi Kushner, uh, yes. who had a particular personal situation in his own life, and he had to kind of struggle to understand uh, how you know it could be the way it was. He figured he was he and his wife were living a good life; they had a child, and things didn't work out. Yes. But then we look back to the Book of Job in the um, uh, in the in the Bible, it's not in everybody's Bible because of its nature. But you know, his Job, who in the very beginning was defined to be a righteous man, he had children, he had uh, a nice life, a wife, things were going well, he was obeying God's commands, and then all of a sudden it was taken away because God and what was referred to as the devil was saying, "I wonder if." Job would behave in the same righteous way if he were living in difficult circumstances. And then the book of Job goes on for 40 or 50 chapters to figure out how Job could understand, finally realizing at the end that everything belonged to God and that we as human beings had to understand the world very differently than saying that uh, everything should happen in a nice, neat, packaged way. But again, that's a very difficult thing to to really understand. But whether it be what happened in World War II, whether it happened uh, in, you know, a hurricane, Katrina, et cetera, 
we still ponder differently today. Why is it that these kinds of things happen, and why is there suffering? And people will say, why can't God, uh, who is merciful, compassionate, and loving, uh, make things right? But then again, as we say, well, it, we're not puppets. We do have free will. Things happen. The natural circumstances do happen. Uh, right. Winds happen. Uh, rain comes down. The natural atmospheric issues do happen. Uh, we're born with a certain DNA complex. Uh, there are cancer cells perhaps in our body, latent, waiting to kind of emerge maybe 20 or 30 years later. Uh, life is complicated, and we can't say that God just made every, or should have made everything nice and neat, I guess. And, and of course, we should differentiate between <clears throat> natural disasters or natural situations that we have no control over and mm -hmm. situations of evil, which is situations that we do have control mm -hmm. over as people. And, mm -hmm. of course, what we're talking about in this case is the yes. evil ones. Right. These are not, there's nothing... There's no predilection in the part of anyone to go and shoot up a, a nursery school. I mean, there's just a, that's not part of our DNA. I don't mm. believe that. I mean, no, that's, no. that's a conscious, deliberate choice based upon the set of values. And we need to understand the nature of those values and why they got to that point. I mean, it's a, we have to understand it or else we're not going to be able to uh, stop it. We're not going to be able to address it in the future. You know, I mean, this is a complete violation of the natural and the political and the social order. You know, this is something that uh, goes beyond, um, you know, and, and the, the, the weird part about it, the, fri the frightening part about it, really, is that this didn't even have to do with um, a crime. I mean, it wasn't that this person wanted to stop somebody that he didn't like. It wasn't that he was trying to kill. This isn't like a for, an employer, you know, get, you know, somebody firing somebody and then them coming back right. and, and shooting you, which is evil and, and despicable. But they're they're focusing on a particular person. It's a crime of passion. It may be even a premeditated crime, but nevertheless, there's a motivation there, and we can't have that. But the point is, this isn't even that. This is just, you know, I'm going to go and kill these people because. Who knows? I mean, mm. it wasn't a particular person that he was, was seeking to kill. He wanted right. to kill. Apparently, he had enough ammunition that he could kill, and he was planning on killing every single person at that school. Right, right. The only reason he was stopped was because, um, actually, I don't even know why he was stopped, but he was, yeah. I think the police showed up, and uh, <clears throat> so he killed himself. But uh, this this was his plan. He took. A, did he know anybody at that school? I don't know. I mean, was it was it a grudge of some sort? He simply decided that this was what he was going to do. And the interesting, you know, thing uh, we were talking uh, a few of us last evening uh, about some of the nature of the media reports. Uh, mm -hmm. Just as an example, and this fuels, I think, a, a very difficult fire to take place in terms of saying, oh, this is why we immediately want to know why this happened. What was the motivation? What was the rationale for this young man to do what he did? And as reports, only a few hours after the incident became public across the nation, people were, when I say people, journalists, if you wish to call it that, were saying, aha, his mother, 
uh, was a teacher in the school, and she was murdered in the school, which proved to be wrong in terms of right. where he did kill her, but not at the school. As a matter of fact, there's indications that she had no professional connection with the school. That was, you know, people thought she may have been a teacher herself. Mm-hmm. And on and on and on, the first report indicated that both uh, this young man's mother and father were, you know, were killed. But, of course, the father was... Uh, uh, at work, and he's still alive and doing well. So all kinds of quick answers. People want to have that quick answer, that easy solution, uh, so mm-hmm. simplistic. Uh, if A, then B. But then right now we're still trying to figure out what A is. That's right. I mean, all this kind of like jumping on something and speculating in terms of who and what. Uh, one report that I saw early on, and I don't in any way endorse it. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it matters. But um, according to uh, one uh, news article that I saw re- re-linked on the Drudge Report, um, this person, this murderer, was part of this so-called goth movement. Okay. Uh, again, I, I know what I know what he means. I know what that yeah. is. These people, and the same thing was true of the guy that shot up the movie theater in Denver. Right. And the same thing was true of Columbine, by the way. I mean, uh, the, right, right. They, they, in other words, they were wearing black leather clothes. Right. You know, they were affecting a certain nihilistic <clears throat> attitude. I understand that he was a fan of Nietzsche, had a copy of Nietzsche. That that's another thing I, I can't confirm. Yeah, I. I um, you know the, the kind of the super race and the uh, you know the right. kind of the you know God is dead. By the way, I mean it was right. Nietzsche's slogan. Um, you know, and there's this kind of um, movement that that does exist in this country. I don't know lately, but I, this is I haven't been there lately. Mm-hmm. But years yeah. ago, I'm sure Mike, you might have noticed as well that if you went to Harvard Square, yep, or Kenmore Square, and you saw certain. Uh, people that you know is kind of like a cult. I don't know if you, you do. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, right. People that was strapped with lots of black leather straps and piercings and, and mm-hmm. tattoos and uh, you know th- there was kind of a, a nihilistic, you know, negative mm-hmm. and you know uh, sort of <clears throat> right. alienated uh, mm-hmm. experience. You know, they were trying to make themselves as, as ugly as they possibly can. Now again, this this I believe, and again I don't have enough on this. I'm just beginning to research it. Actually, it, it is part of this so-called goth movement. Right. You know, women wearing dog collars around their necks, mm. and uh, you know, uh, just uh, abusing themselves, and uh, you know, abusing others, and uh, just kind of a an anarchistic thing. And uh, again, I'm not here to to talk. I'm not trying to preach here, mm. and I'm not trying to make blanket statements about what this is about, I'm simply pointing out mm. that there was one report that identified him mm. as part of this goth movement. Right. Do you, uh, have you noticed this, this phenomenon at all, Mike? Well, I, I, I think I've, what I've noticed, you know, as you indicate from afar, from a distance, by, by either seeing people uh, walking in outlandish, I'll just use that, uh, you yeah. know, dress up, what have you, and you kind of take it for what it is, and sometimes it's just a phase or a fad that uh, some young people get into and get out of fairly quickly, hopefully, uh, right. and go back to you know being somewhat more uh, mainline in terms of dressing or what have you. But the other thing that it's interesting, and it comes up at this particular point in time where on December 21st, the winter solstice, 
there are folks who are looking for the apocalyptic uh, event. You're and, talking uh, about the Mayan thing. Yes, right, that the world is coming to an end. And there was one particular story, and again, we don't know the background because it's you know one of these things where it hasn't been verified, but there was a particular story that indicated that this young man's mother, whom he shot, uh, was a person who was uh, looking at the end time herself. She yes, was I saw that as well. Yeah, she was she preparing felt that, for... She there was about to be a collapse of... Yeah, um, yeah she was apocalyptic world. in one sense. So uh, these people do not have the sense of being in the same place in society that, let's say, we'd be more comfortable with, you know... No, I mean it's uh you know these are very uh, frightened and and people. I mean this is very bizarre stuff. And um you know, I mean look, there are certainly some Christian cults that have been into this idea that the apocalypse is upon us, but sure. but they're not going out and shooting people. I mean right. they they're, they're right. praying. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of a difference. I mean, this isn't uh, it, it has nothing to do with the, this desire that they should destroy the world. It's more like they should prepare themselves spiritually so they get uh, yeah. they, they undergo the uh, the rapture. I mean, it's so, so there's a little difference there. In fact, it's the exact opposite in many ways. Even though I personally don't subscribe to any of this stuff, hmm. uh, I, I leave that in the hands of God. I just don't, you know. I mean, that's, right. I think right. that's a more honest approach. Right. You, you try to live the good life, and you know, you let those chips fall where they do. I mean, it's a, you know, these are the sorts of things that we have no control over. Um, other than what we do with our own lives and what we advocate for others, but uh, but I think that uh, going back to the goth thing, I mean, I, I look, I have a cousin who was into this for a while. I mean, I remember she she shaved half her hair off and she was hmm. tattoos and she wore like you know tight little black leather stuff, and and it was just a phase hmm. and, and it was not something that uh, you know that was a big deal. I think she did it for a year or two. But 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 this is but there might be a part of that movement that it's it's more than just a phase. You know, some people I think seriously get into it. I don't know if there might even be a connection. And again, this is I know I'm speculating here, but I think we have to. I think we have to take a look at this to understand it. Is there a satanic connection here? You know, like for example, the the, the man who shot Congresswoman Giffords right. in Arizona. We know that he was involved with. Uh, some very very bizarre religious practices in his backyard. He was sacrificing animals and burning them, and had like an altar set up, and there was a pentagram, I believe. And you know, was he a Satanist? Mm. I, I I think it's very plausible that he was. Mm. Right. Mm. Uh, we know the son of Sam. I did a, an interview years ago. Very very disturbing book. This journalist did a, did a research on him, and actually went to the prison and interviewed him. Mm-hmm. And and other people around him, and he discovered that this man who was was killing women in New York City until he was caught, he was a Satanist. He was part of a cult mm-hmm. of people who were worshiping Satan. Now, and that's a fact. I mean, this is a legitimate book. It's a journalist who mm-hmm. uh, you know, spent years researching it. I mean, he didn't have any particular <clears throat> axe to grind. Right. So, I mean, is this part of it? I don't know. I don't know. It's an ugly thing to think about, but, uh, you know, we have to confront it. We have to, as a society, and I feel it's my obligation right. as a uh, as an on-air journalist, 
<clears throat> to examine all aspects mm. of this and to try to understand it without flinching, with it, with a mm. full, you know, eye open in terms of what's going on here, because that's the only way we can prevent it. Right. Or at least reduce it. Uh, right, reduce it, sure, because, you know, there'll be <clears throat> situations that are just, again, beyond the uh, uh, behavioral issues that you come up with. And I think, you know, you can go back <laughs> how far back you want to go and try to find that particular strain uh, of behavioral concerns that, you know, you can say, wow, look at this, here's a red flag, here's a situation that we need to be monitoring more carefully and, uh, again, I'm not a behavioral scientist, but I think you, you do raise the issue that if we can reconstruct airline crashes, uh, mm. why can't we take a, a similar approach to understanding how it is that the human brain, quote, crashes? I'll use that analogy. That's right. So. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. Michael Wanowitz is, is here with us. Uh, you're welcome to join the program. 347 327 9849 is the number. 347-327-9849. In hour number two, we've got Sharif Gurgis coming on. He is um, the director of um, this uh, Love and Family Network, something we could all use a little bit right now, of Love and fa uh, Fidelity, actually family. Love and Fidelity Network, also a good concept. Um, and uh, we shall discuss that issue in hour number two. Please stay tuned. Mike, the um, the main sort of conventional um, issue that is being brought up by the big news uh, organs in this country mm. and even by Congress is the issue of gun control mm. and the fact that this man had a semi-automatic rifle. And, and my position on that is that I actually don't understand why Semi-automatic weapons should be available to so many people. I mean, I you know I, I tend to be maybe that maybe that makes me a little more liberal. Although I don't think that this is necessarily a liberal conservative thing. I mean, you get just as many liberals as conservatives who are pro-gun ownership. Right. For example, the st the state in this union that is the most where you have the most people who are gun owners you know, in ratio to the population is Vermont, mm -hmm. and it's not exactly a conservative state. So. You know, Harry Reid is the main main advocate for gun ownership 
in the U.S. Senate, and he's a liberal Democrat. So it's not – this isn't a Republican thing. It's not mm-hmm. a Democrat thing. I think people who who live tend to live west of the mm. Mississippi tend to have a little bit of a higher <clears throat> ratio of gun ownership and right. uh, and who are part, it's part of the culture there. Less so here in Massachusetts, although, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, growing up in Quincy in the 1960s and 70s, I seem to remember that Sears Roebuck used to have a gun counter. Um, people could, you know, you could go there, a adult could go there and just buy a gun and show his license. I even think Woolworths had a gun mm. counter. Am I <clears> wrong <throat> about that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that you're right, you know, whether it be the 50s or 60s or, or 70s. <clears throat> and I think <clears throat> it was after the um, <clears throat> assassinations, I think, in the 60s and with yeah. the attack on President Reagan and uh, you know the particular Brady, uh, you know gun law issues and so forth coming up. That the limiting of the use or the availability of firearms in general uh, has, you know, took a turn after these, as you say, 60s and 70s because of particular issues and events. Um, so yeah, it just, it, you know, it just boggles your mind that you know if people with good mature sensibilities. Uh, get a hold of a firearm for hunting, let's say, you know, up in Maine or New Hampshire when it's deer season or if they're just doing some target practice for whatever reason, but have a very mature uh, way about why they're using a, a, a firearm for a particular purpose, that's one thing. But if people are just out there and, you know, we don't know what their particular mental state might be, uh, then you have a red flag. And, of course, I think it should be pointed out that this murderer's mother mm. had guns, and she was a gun enthusiast, and she actually had taken him to a firing range. Mm. And he used one, I believe he used one of the guns in the house. Yeah, so, right, uh, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be torn on this. I think that you've got radicals on both sides of the issue mm-hmm. that have poisoned the discussion, very much like what's happened with the abortion mm-hmm. question. I mean, on the one hand, you have people who believe that anybody should be able to own practically any kind of gun, and they're against any gun control. On the other hand, you have people who want to ban private ownership of guns, and that includes some pretty big liberal thinkers. I mean, I, it, it, this is a matter of public record, but Alan Dershowitz is one of those. Mm-hmm. Right. And he has said that he wishes that the Founding Fathers did not include the Second Amendment. I mean, he doesn't think Americans should own guns. And and I think that because of that, you have a reaction uh, by people who are who are, who do own guns, and they become a little bit more extreme. And I think mm-hmm. the truth is that we, we, we there should be reasonable regulation, but at the same time, we we should have the right to ownership of guns. And in fact, I think that it's not a bad idea to have more people who are trained properly. And by by that, I don't mean policemen. I'm talking about average people, average mothers and fathers, who are trained properly and who are, who take the necessary classes and who get certified to to keep a gun. And I think that if that had been the case at this school, then lives would have been saved. This person knew when he went to that school. I mean, I I, I would assume that nobody was there with a gun and that he could go in there. Same thing with the movie house, that they could go in there with impunity and just kill everybody. If there had been someone at at that school with a gun, maybe they wouldn't have, you know, he still would have gotten away with it if he, maybe he wouldn't have even shown up. But if he did, 
at least they, instead of 26 deaths, maybe there would have been 25 deaths. You know, they would have saved a life. So, you know, to my way of thinking, this whole idea that we're going to have some kind of a peace and utopia if we if everybody just gets rid of all guns, that that's not sane. You know, we have to defend ourselves, and these schools have to have people in the school, at least one or two, and they could be teachers who are trained properly and who keep a gun nearby in case something like this happens. It's that simple. That's reality. I mean, this, let's, let's get real here. I mean, this is a, we have these, these institutions which are sitting there defenseless. You can't have police guarding everything. You know, we have to be able to provide for basic defense in a coordinated and careful manner. Anyways, mm. um, you know, it, it seems to me that, um, you know, there was a lot more gun ownership before this happened than after. So to suggest that it's it's a problem of guns, while I and in the context that I agree, these should not be semi-automatic weapons. Mm. That, that that misses the point. I mean, that's not right. That's not what the problem is. The problem here was with the person who behind the gun, mm. and what happened there. What what was uh, who was this person, and who were all of these people in these schools, and why are they doing it? I mean, I'm getting back to that. That is the question, not whether or not he had a gun. We all, plenty of people have guns, you know. It's, it's not, it's, it's really, if they're going to focus on that, then there's going to be continuation of this problem. Yeah, I think it's like that uh, <clears throat> Huckabee, uh, you know, God is out of the classrooms, you know, simplistic uh, point of view, that if nobody, if guns were just abolished completely, uh, would this solve the problem? And maybe it just shifts the particular methodology of people who are trying to do something hideous uh, to use a different kind of, quote, methodology. But um, No, it emboldens them. It, look at that guy who shot that summer camp in, in Norway. Norway is a country that, where they have no private ownership of guns. He right. knew he could go yeah. there and, and, and murder these people without worrying about it and did. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's something unrealistic about that. They're dealing with this sort of uh, gauzy, utopian idea that if you take guns away from private citizens, it's going to result in peace. It's the opposite. That You know, you have to have the right of people to keep, I mean, not to use a classic mm-hmm. example, but uh, Germany before before the Nazis, actually in the, in the Weimar Republic, they confiscated all of the guns of private citizens because they said we have to keep the peace and it'll mm. you know it'll reduce some of the gang violence and and as a result when the Nazis came to power they didn't have to worry about uh, busting someone's door down taking them away because they knew that there wasn't a father on the other side of the door with a gun defending his family they knew that and so they could do it if there had been guns you know in the hands of the private citizen this probably I wouldn't say it wouldn't have happened, but there would have been a basic natural deterrence. It would have been a natural. I mean, I think that our founding fathers, when they put in the Second Amendment, they viewed that as part of the natural system of checks and balances, part of the uh, the idea of, um, of of a separation of powers. And armed citizenry was a given. I mean, it was the idea that uh, you know this is the best way to uh, reduce the possibility of tyranny in this country. And I think that principle is still there. You know, I mean, if people are basically functioning as sovereign people, protecting the lives of themselves and their family and their community, 
then you have a, a, a safer and freer society. I just think that that's obvious. Anyways. Yeah. So um, this is this is an article on Alex Jones's website. He says here Facebook suspends account for questioning official narrative on shooting. Uh, Facebook is suspending user accounts that question the official narrative behind the Sandy Hook school massacre. Following a warning by Connecticut State Police spokesman Lieutenant J. Paul Vance that misinformation, quote, posted on social media sites could result in prosecution. An image posted in the aftermath of the shootings that questioned whether, quote, a clumsy 20-year-old autistic kid, unquote, could have pulled off the murders of 26 people was deleted and the user's account hit with a three-day suspension. Wow. I was informed the reason for the punishment was the result of a meme I had shared, writes the editor of Secrets of the of the Fed.com. Facebook told me it violates Facebook's statement of rights and responsibilities. I was further warned that if you continue to abuse Facebook features, your account could be permanently deleted. <clears throat> on Saturday, Connecticut State Police warned that people posting misinformation on social media websites would be investigated and prosecuted. However, this threat could apply to the vast majority of the mainstream media who, in their haste to go out ahead of the story, reported numerous details that soon turned out to be completely incorrect. Right. It was initially reported that Adam Lanza's mother, this is what you were mentioning, the first victim of the rampage was a teacher at the school, which was not true. It was initially reported that Lanza had also killed his father, which was not true. It was initially reported that the culprit behind the massacre was Ryan Lanza, Adam Lanza's brother, which was not true. <laughs> Initial reports that a second gunman arrested in the woods behind the school was involved in the massacre were later dropped without explanation. Given the most of this misinformation about the shooting came from the corporate media sources, the fact that Facebook is punishing users for asking questions about the proper sequence of events, essentially labeling such activities a thought crime, is a worrying development. As we have previously highlighted, Facebook occasionally deletes images and posts that it claims violate Facebook statements of rights and responsibilities, yet constitute little more than political conjecture or a highly skepticism, high, healthy skepticism of official narratives on current events. In September of 2011, Infowars, that's uh, Alex Jones's website, mm -hmm. reporter Darren McBreen was told by Facebook staff not to voice his political opinion on the social networking website. Responding to comments McGreen had made about off-grid preppers being treated as criminals, the Facebook team wrote, be careful making, about making political statements on Facebook, adding Facebook is about building relationships, not a platform for your political viewpoint. Don't antagonize your base. Be careful and cognizant of what you are preaching. Well, first of all, uh, Facebook has a right to delete an account. It's a private company. You know, people putting stuff on Facebook, uh, you know that's that's mm. that's their right. You know I, I respect that. Mm. I mean, people are, are getting these Facebook pages for free, and if Facebook doesn't like something that's on the Facebook page, they can they can delete it. I don't I don't think that's a, you know that, that that's a matter of proprietorship. You know, so it, it, it's a little concerning that uh, that the police 
commissioner would call people for people to be prosecuted mm-hmm. for making statements mm-hmm. unless they say something that's, uh, you know, um, deliberately uh, provocative and uh, false that you know and, and can be proven to have believed that it was false, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it gets to a bigger question, of course, and I get that, which is uh, that that we have to have an honest discussion of this, and sometimes that can mean uh, going in directions that are not necessarily politically correct. So, mm. I saw that uh, an item on the Dredge Report this morning about the fact that a Facebook user, his account or her account, whatever, was taken away because questioning official reports. And just as you have been describing what's, what's, what took place, is that uh, you know, one can be cynical or skeptical about what is being reported because of the inaccuracies that now we're becoming aware of that were, were being reported through the media, the mainstream media, on Friday afternoon, even into early Saturday morning, etc. cetera. Uh, so that questioning whether or not a particular item is accurate or not, uh, and, 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 you know, that should not be per se uh, a reason to take unusual action. But I can see, as you say, Facebook does have this kind of idea that if you are trying, whether it be a photograph of a naked woman, for example, that was a partly uh, a reason for somebody to have their account taken down, there's certain uh, social guidelines that Facebook, mm-hmm. as a private company, wants to maintain, and uh, that's their right. People join Facebook freely, and they can stop doing what they're doing freely. It's not something that's mandatory in, in any sense. It's a personal, private decision people make, and Facebook tries to maintain a certain decorum. That's right, and they have a right to do it. I mean, I I, I would prefer that they were not doing it because they don't like the politics of someone. Uh, you know, I certainly understand that they don't want to have certain images uh, that because they want to maintain a certain uh, you know community standards that I totally get, but um, yeah, I mean I, I think that I would hope that as a private company they would give a very wide berth to political speech, and um, and uh, you know to, as long as it's not um, you know like uh, like Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes mm-hmm. once said, as long as you're not yelling fire in a crowded theater, right? <clears throat> you know there's a you know he he defined that as the limit of um, a free speech, <clears throat> free speech. And, and, I think, yeah. and rightfully, because right. I mean that's at that point, you know, speech is is uh, more than just speech; it's affecting people's uh, safety in life. So, right. uh, but anyway, Mike, we've got um, we've got Sharif Gurgis coming up. He is um, born. Let's see. Let me just give, look at his bio here. He was born in Cairo, grew up in Delaware majored in philosophy at Princeton, where he won several academic prizes, including the 2007 Dante Prize for the nation's best undergraduate essay on Dante, Dante wow. Alighieri, right? I mean, uh, the, the yep, Inferno, right. which yeah. I have not read. I mean, I'm sure you probably have. But uh, I don't know. We, we could talk about that. Right. His senior thesis in sex ethics won the Princeton Prize for best thesis in ethics and best thesis in <laughs> philosophy. Upon graduating Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude in 2008, he went on to earn a master's degree in moral, political, and legal philosophy at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He is now pursuing his Ph.D. in philosophy at Princeton 
and his J.D. at Yale Law School, his paper, What is Marriage?, co-authored with Robert George and Ryan Anderson, was published in December and quickly became the Social Science Research Network's most downloaded paper on the pre- of the previous year. Their book on the same subject, which improves and expands upon the article, will be released this fall in addition to publishing more popular contexts. He has given lectures and talks and engages in debate on marriage and related topics throughout the United States. So I think that that, that pretty much tells us what what, what we're looking at here. (laughs) And what what we can expect from Mr. Mr. Gerges. Um, He will be with us Mm -hmm. at the top of the hour. And, of course, um, you, our dear listeners, are welcome to chime in and and pontificate, as it were, 347-327-9849, And uh, we're talking, Michael Wanowitz and I, that is, are talking about, obviously, the news of the day, which is the uh, the slaughter in Connecticut and what happened, why it happened, who did it, why, and what's going on. Uh, Mike, I think that Pat Buchanan, who I often respect, has a pretty good column out today. I haven't read it yet. I just have been running around all day today. But uh, he uh, he talks about this guy and, and what, what was going on with him. Um, knowing what I know about Pat, I think it probably has he, – he's taking a look at some of the moral and spiritual – Aspects to it. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't. <clears throat> I haven't seen that particular column, but you know, Buchanan does, you know, have a particular uh, perspective on life and being hard right, if you will, or orthodox sure. in some ways, in terms of his morality, um, morality, and his sister's yep. two uh, babe and so forth. So yeah, very good. Yeah, I've I've always liked this stuff. I've read several of both of their books. Hmm. And uh, he's kind of a a pretty, as you say, it's pretty hard right when it comes to um, libertarian approach to to government. Um, Somewhat of a, he's been accused of being an isolationist, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's true. Um, You know, but but good man. I mean, he Mm -hmm. definitely has a a well-developed point of view, and he's had a lot of influence. So um, we'll have to check that out, um, you know, when when we get a chance. Anyway, um, again, we have... um, Sharif Gerges coming up, Love and Fidelity. I mean, he's an expert on marriage and what it is and what it isn't. I'm sure we're going to uh, delve into some interesting speculation on that. And uh, and we will continue, obviously, discussing the Connecticut slaughter and what happened. It's just such a depressing and sad situation, uh, I think, for the whole country, especially as we approach the Christmas holiday. I mean, I just, uh, I can't imagine what, what, I mean, you know, as a father of, of, of I mean, my, my first thought was uh, to get my daughter the heck out of, this, of the school she's in. You know, I mean, I, I think that um, in the case of my daughter, they do have um, an officer with a gun stationed at the school, and they always have. And they should, you know, in all schools at this point. And not just an officer, but people who are trained, again, to, to use a, a gun you know who are there in in you know the teachers they're in plain clothes but they have they they're, they're packing as it were mm. and uh, and they're watching over events mm. you know this this has to be stopped you know we could talk all day about the psychology about what's going on but the reality is that we have millions of young people in schools as we speak and we have to make sure that these places are properly 
uh, armed and, and ready to deal with any eventuality. I just think that's an immediate given, and I think that that should happen. I mean, I don't know if, if and why anybody should say no to that. No, I think police presence, uh, again, in, in situations where we have the most vulnerable, you know, to use that word in our society, young people, innocent, so forth, in classrooms trying to study, uh, and the fact that there is an armed presence or maybe not so much publicly observed by somebody who is in the building, uh, whether it be the high school, the elementary schools, what have you, pre-K, kindergarten, in places where there are innocent people, given this particular society in which we live, uh, I think that's a good thing. And I think here in the town of Walpole, where I am, we have had for a long, long time, uh, the integration of police people in the schools, not so much specifically for this particular kind of thing, but just in general, uh, whether we're concerned about drugs, whether you're concerned about bullying in general, but just the idea that places should be safe and secure um, under any circumstance. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. We'll be back in hour number two. Sharif Gerges will be with us. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse, and uh, please stay tuned. This is your host, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, you're welcome to join the broadcast, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. I thought that I saw Mr. Gerges come up on the board, but uh, oh, there he is. Okay, so he's there. Um, let me, uh, Michael Wanowitz is with us from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church, and I'd like to welcome our guest, Sharif Gerges, uh, born in Cairo, grew up in Delaware, majored in philosophy at Princeton, where he won several academic prizes. Uh, he is the author of a master's report, <coughs> Marriage and Constitutional <coughs> Law. Sharif, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sharif, in a nutshell, what is marriage? Well, I think marriage is a, an institution that, from the social perspective, is meant to bring men and women together to be mother and father to any children they might have. And from a kind of personal perspective, it's a union that you might kind of set apart from other kinds in terms of its comprehensiveness. It's body and mind. It's uh, ordered not just to this or that activity, but family life. So in a way, all those activities. And it calls for a uniquely total commitment, so permanent and exclusive. Mm -hmm. Now, marriage, of course, as we know it today, at least conventionally, which is a man and a woman, a monogamously married as as an ideal marriage is something that has evolved. I mean, it's not something that uh, simply uh, bust over on the scene. It was uh, if we look at, for example, in the in the Bible, particularly in Old Testament times, you you have examples where very wealthy people had multiple marriage partners. I mean, there was a, there was polygamy, and, and also um, 
you know, and the, the development, I think, of the monogamous marriage is something that um, has uh, has become societally the norm all over the world over the past several centuries. So here we are today, and uh, and the marriage between a man and a woman, for the very uh, reasons you've explained, are the conventionally accepted form of marriage. Yeah, that's right. But I, I would just uh, distinguish a couple of things. So the first thing I think is that, you know, over time, one core aspect has been there in pretty much every society that we have a record of, which is bringing a man and a woman together, the union of hearts and minds that's ordered mm-hmm. to all of family life. Now, that much is constant, and I think there's a reason for that. I mean, why would every society think that they should involve themselves in what's otherwise a very intimate sort of relationship? You know, we, we regulate business dealings. We don't regulate best friendships. The difference is that everybody has a stake in this kind of relationship and the kind that on which really the next generation in almost every aspect of uh, well-being depends. Well, let's talk a little bit about why that is. I mean, uh, my observation right off the bat is because a man and a woman together have the physical ability of reproducing and having children and that uh, the the married couple with a family is a much more autonomous institution that, that is not manipulated by outside forces. They can maintain uh, stability by by having one person be the breadwinner, the other person bringing up the children, and that they're therefore an independent unit. Why is I it think that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's a crucial insight. So the first thing is that there are just certain jobs that the family can do much better than the state or any other larger organization. And in a way, they're the most important jobs. You can't have an ordered society at any other level, unless you have people basically growing up in an environment with more or less love and commitment and stability and the kind of education and formation that you get from a stable household to become upright citizens. I mean, basically honest, basically fair dealing with their fellows, uh, and, and themselves kind of educated in the form of life that can reproduce itself in that way. It's the best department of education and health and welfare is the family, and we have the government for important cases where things fall apart, which we can't completely eliminate. But unless we have a core foundation, uh, the rest can't do can't do the job. Okay, now let me welcome aboard our affiliate stations. You're listening to Chuck Morse speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. Welcome aboard Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our host station, WWPA in uh, Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQ FM in Ashland, Oregon. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. Michael Wanowitz is here from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church, who I'll introduce mm. momentarily. And Sharif mm. Gerges is with us. He is with the, uh, the, the, the Love and Fidelity Institute. We're talking about the definition of marriage. Now, uh, Sharif, starting sometime in the mid-1990s, there was suddenly introduced this idea of gay marriage. Now, it was introduced, mm. I, would, I think we can trace that to the New York Times. Before then, no one ever, it didn't occur to anybody that uh, a gay marriage could happen or that it would be something that, let alone it would be something that would be recognized by the state, including most gay people had never heard of it. Uh, they certainly had commitment ceremonies, but nobody had ever thought that this was a marriage in the real sense or that it was something that the government would recognize um, it was promoted by the New York Times through their columnist, Anthony Lewis, who wrote, and, and many other thinkers began to pick up on it. And then in 1974, or 19, in 2003, 
Anthony Lewis's wife, who was also the Supreme Judicial Court head of Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, Margaret Marshall, ruled that gay marriage would be legal. Now, um, that's a little bit of the history of it. However, how has it worked out? It seems to me that um, many of the predictions that were made by conservatives at the time, which was that uh, recognizing gay marriage or recognizing, in a sense, the right of any two people to get married, um, would, would somehow have a, a diminutive effect on conventional marriage. I don't think that's happened. I think that uh, these marriages, you know, whether we approve of them or not, they seem to be working out okay for people who are in them, and they seem to be, while in my opinion not as, as not as ideal as a conventional mm-hmm. marriage, they seem to be functioning okay. Well, a couple of things on that point. Uh, the first point is you've got to ask yourself, what is the public message that's being sent by this change in the law? Because it's not just about the granting or denying of benefits to a particular couple. It's about a public meaning of an institution. And I think on that score, the results are pretty different. Actually, I think that same-sex marriage doubles down on what we already started with, with no-fault divorce, which is basically seeing marriage as mainly about an emotional union and about the emotional fulfillment of the adult. And that basic understanding makes it harder to put social pressure on each other and on ourselves to, you know, stick with a marriage when the emotion is waxing or waning or starting to wander. Uh, And it it makes it harder to send the message that kids really need both their mom and their dad. Uh, The more any given parent feels kind of replaceable, then the harder it is to see why they have to stick together for the kids. But the second thing I want to bring up is just the, the effects of this concretely. I mean, we can talk about it at the level of ideas, and I think that is a pretty clear idea that if marriage is emotional union, you can't explain all these other norms that are supposed to stabilize it. But in practice, that's playing out in a couple ways. One is that the leaders of the same-sex marriage movement, despite themselves and despite their protests from a decade ago, are increasingly coming to follow the logic of their view. They're saying, you know what? So we have in Mexico City a proposal for um, temporary marriages that you can renew every two years. You have in Brazil the first recognition by a public official of a three-person union because if it's emotional union, three people can have that. You have uh, people in the New York Times, uh, you know, Dan Savage, a nationally syndicated columnist, saying one of the best things about introducing gay marriage is that it will introduce more flexibility and sexual openness in in opposite-sex relationships. Uh, and we have a, a New York Times study being or, or, study being reported in the Times uh, that was done by San Francisco State University that says that gay marriages share, quote, an open secret, and that's the words of the Times itself, meaning that uh, at much higher levels they're explicitly and by commitment and by consent sexually open. They just follow different norms, and that's been actually one of the worries of the gay marriage, of the gay movement two decades ago, which is that Mm -hmm. marriage would be a kind of patriarchal oppression and imposition of these norms has now been flipped around, and the same leaders are saying, actually, we should accept and embrace gay marriage precisely to undermine those norms more broadly. So increasingly, they and we agree that, you know, complementarity and monogamy and exclusivity and permanence, all these things are a package deal, and we only disagree on whether it's good to keep them that way or not. Okay, this Mm -hmm. is getting interesting. Let me welcome aboard Mm -hmm. Mike Iwanowitz from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Mm -hmm. Church. Mike? Yes, thank you, uh, Chuck, and it's uh, uh, good to hear from a young scholar uh, talking about marriage in ways that 
you and I, Chuck, have been living with for many gener you know, generations, if you will. Uh, yeah. And I have six grandchildren, and you know, we see things from the same perspective. But uh, maybe a basic question I have uh, for our guests would be this: Is that some people take a look at marriage and say, "Yes, it's good that a male and a female, a man and a woman." come together because of the opportunity to procreate and to be family and to raise children. And what about people who are perhaps in their later years, man and a woman, uh, who are, you know, by reason of age, et cetera, et cetera, not going to be able to procreate, but we look at that as okay. Um, what is sure. that about? Well, you know, it's, it's a very interesting pattern historically in the common law as well as in the church's law. So not just there, but and in secular writers as well as religious ones, great philosophers who have no connection with Judaism and Christianity. They always thought that an infertile couple could form a marriage, but two people who didn't have a sexual relationship or who only had a same-sex connection or whatever could not. And, and I think the basic insight there is this. Marriage is not just a means to procreation. It's not only as valuable as its effects on the kids. It has value in itself. But what is it that has value in itself? It's that, what we were talking about earlier, that total union, what the religious uh, traditions call one flesh union, what our laws required consummation for, and so on, which is a union of mind and body that points towards family life precisely because the same act that makes marital love also makes new life. And that's it's the same kind of act for, for all of these couples, but not for groups of three or more and not for same sex couples. So the idea is that even when you recognize these other these marriages that we don't expect to produce children, you're still promoting the same basic model and the same basic norms. Total union of mind and body requiring total commitment because it's the kind of union that can give life. But the um but as soon as we change, as soon as we start recognizing same sex relationships, again we're basically saying that actually what makes marriage different is emotional intensity or priority. In fact, the, the, one of the cases that's gone up to the Supreme Court in March uh, from the Ninth Circuit, the challenge to Proposition 8, the judge, in ruling against Proposition 8, actually said, it, it's almost like he took it from, from my writing, <laughs> where he said, uh, marriage is the relationship, marriage is an adult's number one relationship. That's almost a direct quote. It's not as a close paraphrase. In other words, he agrees that if you don't make it, between a man and a woman, the only thing that you can distinguish it by is how much. And uh, on that model, of course, again, as we said, as soon as the emotion wanes, so does the relationship. As soon as the emotion gets divided, so might the relationship and bring in um, other people. Uh, so I think uh, the same basic point holds, that for centuries we saw this basic model, male and female, and union of mind and body and so on, as supporting all these other norms. And as soon as we opened it up, already you can see the effects in people's arguments and rhetoric of undermining those norms. Now, Sharif, you're getting into a, you know, what, what I think by conventional definitions is a rather sensitive issue here. And so I want to tread carefully when I comment on this. And that is that the biblical definition of marriage, which is when the man and the woman come together as one flesh. That, in other words, technically the, the religious, the biblical definition is that when you have sexual intercourse, you're married. That's what consummated the marriage. You know, the, the idea of having ceremony around that, that, that kind of is a side issue. It's a way for the community to celebrate the event. 
and that it has a procreative element to it, but even if it doesn't, and this was the issue that Mike brought up, the sexual act between the man and the woman, which can only happen between a man and a woman, uh, by you know anatomically, I mean it, it's obvious, mm-hmm. is, is from a religious standpoint, it is a recreation of the act of creation itself. It is the uh, you know when God created the universe. I mean Adam and Eve. It's a, that's right. It it basically is you know in a sense when when the man and the woman come together in a marriage, which is again sexual intercourse. They are reenacting creation. Whether they have a child or not, it is the act itself that is reenacting, you know, the very beginning of Genesis. It's 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 a, you know, it's it's a reenactment. So that's that is. I think you could say that that's a marriage, whether you say it from a biblical standpoint or from a scientific standpoint. It obviously is. I mean, you can see it from the anatomy of the male and the female that they're meant to fit together and that two of the same are not. So, in a sense, what we're talking about here literally is a marriage, a coming together of opposites to make Mm -hmm. a union. And that can't happen with two people of the same sex. It's not physically possible for them to be married. Again, I know I'm getting into sensitive issues, and I'm not trying to bring this up to in any way hurt the feelings of gay people who have a committed relationship. I understand that also. My only point is that technically, biblically, scientifically, and in every other way, they are not actually married because they can't be married. I think I think that's right. I just add a few quick things to it. One is that you're right that this has a deep foundation, not just in the Judeo-Christian tradition, actually, but in many other religious traditions, Eastern uh, religions and so on. There's pretty much uniformity on this point. But the second point is that this is something that even people who didn't have a kind of expressed religiosity about it. So you have ancient philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, you have Roman thinkers like Plutarch, you know, people who are untouched by these traditions that we're talking about, who made exactly the same point. And so I think what I want to underscore is that you can see it through the lens of Genesis, or you can just see it by kind of thinking through the issue. I mean, you see that this is, again, the same act, that expresses marital love is also the act that makes new life. And that shows you that what makes this a union in a special way is that it it brings them together and points them together beyond themselves. And that's that's always been a key part of of, uh, unity or community is that, you know, you come together for a purpose that's greater than yourselves. And that doesn't mean that other forms of relationship don't have that. I mean, after all, deep friendships, for example, you know, just to take an uncontroversial case, those are unions of hearts and minds. They don't involve bodily union, and nobody thinks that that means that they're less or that they're worse. That's right. In fact, I think it's only if you start out with the the view of the people who would redefine marriage that you see non-marital relationships as simply less. Why? Because, again, the only way they have left of distinguishing marriage is by its intensity or its priority. So they say marriage is the one that is the most. And, of course, to call something not a marriage, then to them, sounds like you're just saying it's less. But actually, on the traditional view, you know, friendship itself is a great good. Um, it's the kind of good that civilizations can also be built on, but in a different way. Uh, and it's not denigrating a relationship to say that whatever its value as a union of hearts and minds, whatever its personal value, it doesn't have the specific contours uh, of marriage or the social meaning of marriage. That's, I mean, all right, I guess the Sharif Gurgis Love and Fidelity Network 
You know, in other words, you can have situations where two men or two women can love each other and have a great friendship. In fact, that's good. It doesn't mean they Absolutely. have to hop into the sack with each other. You know, I mean, it's, well, it's a whole it's different... Well, that, but it's one thing to remember. I mean, remember, this debate is not even about restricting anybody's personal liberty in any way. I mean, right. we do restrict some people's liberty. Bigamy, for example, is actually banned. You would, yep. you know, to to change that, you would have to legalize it. When people talk about legalizing same-sex marriage, it's really kind of misleading. It suggests that something is banned here. We're not talking about people's private behavior, which we want to, you know, preserve the space for, and we don't want the police state kind of expanding in that way. What we're talking about is a public institution, and what relationships we're going to call and understand as marriages, and and especially what relationships we're going to teach the next generation, you know, have this form in which they'll. Okay, Mike. <clears throat> well, it's interesting too. To again, I go back, Chuck. You and I sometimes with scripture, and you know, having a relationship between two people, uh, two males, two females, uh, is not a terrible thing in its own right. And I think of King David, you know, David and Goliath of that particular story. But as he became king, and Saul, who had been kings. Uh, son, Jonathan, was there to be kind of a friend and protector of David, uh, who Saul wanted to try to eliminate. And I remember a particular line where David was saying of Jonathan, I love him more than someone would love a woman. And that particular line has indicated that even in those circumstances, uh, they were great friends, period. Although I will tell you that that line has been misinterpreted by the the gay movement to imply that they were gay, and I don't think there's any evidence of that. You know, I think this actually points up another casualty in this debate and another casualty in this progression towards same-sex marriage, which is deep friendship. Because what's happened is we're increasingly making this huge dichotomy. And on one side is friendship, and we think of that as kind of shallow, kind of, you know, it's the people you go drinking with, it's the people you play golf with, and that's kind of the beginning and end of it. And on the other side of it is emotional closeness and trust and vulnerability and uh, deep cooperation and sex. And, it, and we don't see any possibility of having all those other things without a sexual relationship. And, uh, you know, this is something that some, some people have written really beautifully about. Anthony Esselin, he's an English professor. He has a very good um, writing style. He's written a piece called A Requiem for Friendship where he talks about this, and especially in connection with male friendships, that, you know, if if people want to avoid the appearance of a sexual relationship with each other, one way they're going to do that today is by avoiding emotional closeness, by avoiding that kind of openness and vulnerability that really can make a deep friendship and that nobody actually thinks is immoral or, or anything like that. And you look at these letters that, for example, you know, soldiers in the Civil War would write to each other, um, they expressed a, a, a an amazing depth that today every, anybody reads and they get uncomfortable or they think, oh, that they must have been gay and just kind of suppressing it, when even just numbers-wise that couldn't possibly be the explanation. The difference is that they just saw the possibility of a deep connection to someone, to another human being, but not a sexual one. Interesting. Uh, Sharif, look, you know, and yet we have a situation now where you have openly gay couples and they have children in many cases, and uh, and they are functioning in society, and they've made the case that they're entitled to certain rights that, or they should have certain rights that conventionally married couples have, such as 
you know, technical matters like uh, like the hospitalization visits and uh, insurance coverage for for the breadwinner on the, on the other person and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. Are they? I mean, is this something that um, it seems to be functioning okay? I mean, I, I I agree with you in terms of the possibility of it uh, diminishing marriage itself because it's not quite the same. And again, we're generalizing here in terms sure. of like a. You know the the uh, the fidelity and the uh, monogamy of a, of a conventional marriage. Not to say that all of those are so monogamous, but nevertheless, they, yeah. held, the ideal of monogamy and fidelity is held up still in a conventional marriage. Whereas I think in a gay marriage, it's not quite the same. Uh, they well, don't. You know, they, yeah. Sure. Sorry about that. Here's what I would say. You know, there are a lot of good points in this in this kind of uh, objection or this kind of worry. You know, people are rightly concerned about some practical needs. Uh, and, and But here's my question for them. You know, let's, I have uh, my, my mother's brother and sister, so my aunt and uncle, but the brother and sister, uh, live together. They've always had, neither of them has ever been married. They support each other. You know, my uncle is the breadwinner, um, you know, helps my sister out. She, you know, I think they would both be lost if they separated. Uh, but, of course, there's nothing romantic. They're brother and sister. Now, is there any benefit that of that kind, hospital visitation, inheritance, and so on, that we should deny to them just because they aren't and can't legally be in a sexual relationship? And I think uh, here you brought up way, the exact, the, the most important aspect of this, because I, I thought of this myself. I had a friend who was an employee in the city of Cambridge when uh, they first said that their employees could have their gay spouse as part of their health plan. He was bringing, he lived with his elderly mother and her elderly sister, both of whom were in their 90s, both of whom were in poor health, and he had to pay for them, he had to support them, and he was like, well, why shouldn't I get these these benefits? Why should somebody who uh, is gay and who maybe, you know, met somebody at a bar, they could go down the next day and register and get, get health benefits? So, you know, in a sense, if we're going to give out, if we're going to give away Marriage benefits to alternative families, and that's what we're talking about here. Why why shouldn't that be based upon need? Why shouldn't it be based upon qualifications as opposed to whether or not someone's having a sexual relationship, which is a exactly. private thing? And I think the additional benefit of doing it that way is that it does it's less threatening to it undermines less this other ideal of marriage. It's easier to keep these things separate in our minds and in the yeah. public mind, which is really what, what matters here and what affects personal behavior in the long run. You know, so you, you, you keep the idea that when you share a household together, sure, there might be some practical needs, and whatever the shape of the relationship, uh, we want to be able to meet those needs on an, on an as-needed basis. And then on the other hand, we have a marriage, which is defined by all these norms that kind of hang together very well and that we want to continue to support as a unit. And, you know, in a sense, I mean, the, the idea of the state coming in and saying we're going to selectively uh, recognize the gay relationship, the gay committed relationship as a marriage, it's discriminatory. I mean, why are they discriminating against, let's say, someone who has a roommate and they're not gay, but the roommate maybe has some mental problems or maybe they have, maybe they're a war veteran who is suffering from physical problems and they can't work. Why shouldn't they get alternative family benefits or civil union benefits? You know, the gay movement is discriminating against that by insisting that the state come in and validate only their particular 
marriage based upon their sexual relationship. And I think that if we're going to see society advance the idea of marriage benefits, it should be for alternative families. It should be for families that qualify. You know, you have situations where somebody might be divorced and they have a roommate, a, a female or male, doesn't matter, and they have children, they have minors. Why shouldn't they get marriage benefits? Let's say one of them, they're not gay or they're not, they don't, you know, this is not the relationship. One of them might want to, you know, become a guardian for the uh, for the minor child in the household and, and, and be able to pick them up at school without having to worry about identifying themselves all the time and, you know, bring them go to the hospital. So, you know, as a matter of public policy, it seems like we could perhaps expand uh, alternative fam- uh, marriage benefits to alternative families without getting into whether people are gay or straight. I, I think that's absolutely right. You're, and you're exactly right that if the rationale equally favors granting these benefits to two different households, but uh, the gay marriage movement, for, for kind of social reasons, wants to limit it to this to one, that that is a kind of discrimination and that's a kind of unequal yeah. treatment. And in other words, once you get away from this this ideal that kind of hangs together, that gives its own coherent contours, that explains its own principled limits, and you expand that at all, there, it really is arbitrary to select some consensual adult connections and not others. And, and the exact charge that they're making against the traditional view actually undercuts um, undercuts their own. And, and this is something that some of the leaders, again, are increasingly coming to recognize. And, you know, there's a statement called Beyond Same-Sex Marriage, where a lot of LGBT 300, in fact, LGBT scholars and activists and academics and really mainstream people at Princeton and Columbia and so on actually say, you know, we should, exp- you know, we sh- in their case, they want to do it as a kind of social approval of alternative sexual relationships. So they say, you know, we should recognize multiple partner and so on because it's just as discriminatory to require monogamy as it is to require complementarity. Um, so, well, I, again, yeah, I feel like... The only difference I'd, may, I, I'd bring up, the only differentiation is it should not be any of the business of the state, of the public policy of our government, whether or not people are having a sexual relationship or not. Exactly. It should be based upon whether they need, whether they, they can show that there are dependents in the house, whether they can show that they've got some kind of a long-term commitment. We're going to take a brief break. Um, my guest is, is Sharif Gerges. Michael Wanowitz is with us. We'll be right back. Three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. If you'd like to join the conversation, three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. My guest is Sharif Gerges. He is with the Love and Fidelity Network, building the next generation of leaders for marriage, family, and sexual integrity. Uh, Sharif, mar- gay marriage as a as an institution has been legal in this country since the since the Goodrich decision in Massachusetts in 2004. So we're looking at only about eight years uh, in which this has been an existing entity, and it has spread to other states, mainly through judicial decisions, but now it's becoming accepted by the population at large. In fact, in this last election, 
I think there were three states that approved gay marriage through referenda. So uh, after eight years, people are beginning to accept this, and um, it's becoming a norm. Now, my question to you is, has there been the necessary or the normal expected research done by our soft scientists, in other words, our, our psychologists, our sociologists, our anthropologists, our, our, our kind of a soft science community with regard to how these marriages have worked out. I mean, have we looked at other instances of child abuse? How many of them are divorced? What percentage of the gay community actually is engaging in it? Have they increased or decreased in all of those sorts of statistics that normally would be kept in any social development? Well, uh, I think the, the research that we have had has been pretty limited. Uh, one reason is because it's, um, you know, it's just been, it hasn't been too long, as you mentioned. Another is that it's a very politically sensitive topic, right. and so people don't want to come in. You know, if they, if they think they might find uh, results that would give ammunition to the defenders of traditional marriage, you know, then they, they kind of shy away from that. But I will mention a couple of things that have come out. Again, one I alluded to earlier, it was reported on in the New York Times, a, a study by San Francisco State University, and that showed that uh, that these relationships tend, on average, to follow slightly different norms by choice, and you know, not by an inability to do others, but just because it's what makes more sense for their form of relationship. And, and the one uh, citation that I I can report from that uh, study is again the de degrees of uh, a commitment to exclusivity. So people will stay with one partner, but they will. Um, you know, by agreement, have uh, sexual outlets because uh, exclusivity in their case, you know, given temperament or taste or whatever it is in the case, actually serves emotional union by mm -hmm. their own life. And remember, if emotional union is what makes the marriage, then that actually makes sense rather than undercutting uh, a marital relationship. But one quick note about children, which has, um, you know, been the subject of debate for longer than there's been uh, actual um, states with uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, not, there's a, a recent study in um, uh, the journal called Social uh, Science Research, so a major social science journal, by a guy named Lauren Marks at the University of Texas, who points out that all 59, all 59 of the studies that the American Psychological Association relied on in declaring a couple years ago, I think it was 2005, that there are just no differences between opposite and same-sex parenting, all of them fell short in pretty radical ways of the basic kind of gold standard of social science research, which is a large and representative sample. And, and you know, kind of, especially if it can be studied uh, longitudinally, so over time. And, and what he found was that most of these studies use snowball sampling, which means you do the study and you ask your friends to do the study and so on, and so has systematic biases in favor of uh, upwardly mobile relationships and, uh, you know, people higher up on the socioeconomic ladder, and so that the results were kind of systematically skewed. This, in the same issue of social science research, we had the first study that really relied on uh, a large and representative sample, um, and that involved more, uh, more than one kind of indicator that they were looking at. In fact, it looked at over 40 indicators, and that study found that the same pattern we've seen in every other family form holds in this case, which is that on average, uh, married biological parenting does better for children on, you know, every, any factor of uh, health or well-being that you can look at than 
than other family forms. And that, you know, that includes not just, uh, you know, relationship children who, one of whose parents had a same-sex relationship, which was covered in the study, but also any other forms of so step-parenting, uh, divorce, uh, joint custody, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and, and I think, go ahead. No, I mean, I was trying to, I was sort of implying in my question that um, our social scientists are not going to do this study, as you just said, Sharif, because it's not politically correct. It doesn't serve a political agenda to actually take a hard look at what is really going on. I mean, they certainly have enough studies. I see these coming across my desk all the time that prove that conservatives are stupider than liberals. You know, you could take a look at the work of of, uh, Lakoff. And other, they, they come out with all these statistics, or, or they, they, they do an intensive, microscopic look at a religious community, and they look at yep. every... But, but when it comes to this, it's, it's kind of a hands-off situation because it is political. Now, um, and it's something even worse than that, actually, just briefly. Maggie Gallagher, who's a great social scientist, has been working for decades on the marriage debate, not just in fact, has said herself that uh, one of the great tragedies of this debate is that it cut off what had been a growing if reluctant consensus amongst scientists across the spectrum about the benefits of or about the harms of uh, divorce and particularly about the specific benefits that having a father brings to a child uh, growing up with a father. That, again, that was even a slightly separate debate, right? It, was like, it has connections, but it's, but it's different. Uh, that, yep. that she points out just got cut off because it became politically untouchable because of its implications for this one. There you go. And, uh, Mike, I want to bring you back in, but I just want to have one more quick question here as well. I mean, I think that a lot of the the vitality and the dynamism of advocacy around gay marriage has to do with the fact that um, conservatives and Christians are all tied up in knots over it, that there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of working off of that energy and this idea of, oh, look at we're being – you know, we're, we're subversive, we're, we're being very, you know, counterintuitive here, and, you know, it's a way to sort of, and as a result, I think a lot of people who are involved in this movement are not gay or who are gay but have no interest in getting married. Um, so, you know, in a sense, it's a reaction or it's a, it's a political uh, agenda, clearly, and, and that brings up my, my question here, which is something that none of us could answer. But, I mean, I would wonder if maybe, you know, 30 years down the road from today, maybe 50 years down the road, if gay marriage were just left alone and if people were left to their own devices to engage in them, it probably would disappear or it would become extremely rare because it's not really in the long run a sustainable institution for most people. Would I be wrong to think that? Well, you know, I think actually uh – one thing that's been very interesting is that the preliminary evidence shows that in most of the states that legalize it, or there I am using the same term, in most of the states that recognize it, uh, the rates after the first year, the rates of same-sex union uh, asking for marriage recognition go way down. Ah, you see, that's a, those are statistics I'd like to see. Like, how many? I mean, how many actual marriage certificates among gays? were applied for in Massachusetts in 2004, and what is the, what are the statistics in subsequent years by year? I mean, has it gone down, and if so, how much? And how many are divorced? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, all I remember is the, uh, the general statistic, again, that after the first year, the rates go significantly down. 
as a proportion of how many right. uh, same-sex relationships there are. Now, one thing that's um, one place to look for information <clears throat> about this is uh, Maggie Gallagher's new book called Debating Same-Sex Marriage, which she wrote with uh, Jonathan Rouse, and she does a great job of just covering the basic demographics of that uh, of this debate. And I think what it shows is that it's really about particular benefits. It's really about changing the social meaning. That's part of the goal and not just a side effect. Interesting. And I think that obviously if marriage can survive this political agenda and and mm-hmm. remain mm-hmm. what it is and what I think it is quite organically, mm-hmm. then gay marriage itself I think will gradually wither on the vine. Mike, what say you? I'm thinking about the uh, aspect of marriage itself uh in, in a traditional sense, male, female, man, woman. And <clears throat> birth certificates, uh, people look at and say that in the last 10 years, the number of births uh, to unwed mothers has increased in a very dramatic fashion. <clears throat> and I know in the Catholic Church here in Boston, the number of young people who are going through, again, a very traditional marriage, uh, have declined. So, you know, okay. so the idea of just entering in for a young couple into marriage seems to be um, very different than it was a generation ago. What do you make of that, Cherise? Well, I think, again, that, you know, we're, this really brings up that this isn't mainly, uh, certainly not exclusively, a debate about same-sex relationships. This is about the social progress of an institution or or regression of an institution over many decades. Uh, And again, the biggest uh, major point I think in this over the last few decades has been no-fault divorce, which again sends the message that marriage is about uh, adult emotional satisfaction. And if that's what it is, then it becomes a much more kind of optional institution when you're looking into it. It becomes a much lower pressure context when you're looking to exit it, and it just becomes much less important in people's uh, lives. And, and the troubling thing about that is that it hurts the lowest socioeconomic classes the most, by far. So Kay Heimowitz has a book about this, you know, that one of the best indicators of whether a child will know poverty or minimal prosperity when she grows up is whether she was raised in an intact home. And it, in uh, the African community, more than in any other uh, community, African-American community, we have children growing up uh, without a father and outside of marriage at rates of something like 70%. Yes, and I, I think that's something that really precedes gay marriage. It, it kind of goes back to the um, to the welfare state, you know, the uh, paying people not to work and, then, and giving people more money if they're not together and then even more if they have uh, children out of wedlock. And, uh, you know, that, that's something that um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote about extensively as early as the mid-1960s, he being a liberal Democrat. So this isn't even necessarily liberal conservative. It's something that is observable by by people who, who want to be honest about it. And also the, the marriage itself, I think you're right, Sharif, it, it has become much more disposable since no-fault divorce, um, I remember I was very struck years ago by listening to this woman on the radio, this talk show host, who was a so-called, you know, on-air psychologist. Uh, she was talking about divorce, and uh, she happened to mention in the course of her conversation that she had divorced her husband 
a couple of years back. And uh, why did she divorce him? Not because she still loved him, but she divorced him because all her friends were getting divorces and it was the thing to do. You know, it's just that this was the fashion in the late 1970s. So, uh, you know, this kind of attitude of, uh, of, of marriage is something that is just, uh, you know, as you say, it's, it's just because it's an emotional whim that people don't really understand that, um, that there's work involved and that it's, it's really creating and molding a family and that, uh, you know, it's, it's through, through, good and, through, through good and bad times. You know, this idea that everything is just, uh, you know, what, what you feel at the moment. Whatever, you, whatever feels good is what you do. You know, it's uh, part of that. That's, that's, that's exactly right. And that's why this debate is really uh, a pivot point. You know, we're either going to go further down that road and further embrace that model of marriage about as emotional uh, adult satisfaction and uh, further undermine the pressure to go into it if you want to have a kid or to stay in it if you do. Or we're going to begin to pivot and rebuild a marriage culture, regain a foothold for doing that on the kinds of policy reforms that we're talking about, about rolling back no-fault divorce, about public education campaigns, you know, meant to... uh, improve the social prestige of marriage and help people that that's the best way, along with a high school education of, uh, you know, avoiding poverty uh, and so on. Mike? <clears throat> well, that's right. I think, uh, again, and when people talk about, you know, uh, no-fault divorce and we should be looking at that in particular, and then some people will say, well, maybe we need to look at how we, especially in the church, see a young couple who do look at marriage as being the thing they need and want to do and are they prepared, are they the right couple to you know, make their life choices, uh, preparing couples for marriage so they understand what's involved spiritually and everywhere else. So I think pre-marriage counseling is something that we need to, in the church anyway, uh, do a better job of. Although, Mike, I think that religion, and not just the Catholic Church, but uh, churches are being told that they cannot criticize gay marriage and they can't criticize homosexuality. I think that's another important element of this debate is the religious and moral uh, freedom issues that are at stake. I mean, you know, we're we're seeing it's it's just very unstable. You know, whatever people say about making carve-outs and exceptions and protections, it's very unstable to say that a particular view is just, bigotry and irrationality and on a par with racism. And then on the other hand, to say, well, we're going to make sure that we have robust accommodations of it. I mean, that's just not going to happen, not in the long term. We're either going to re-embrace this vision of marriage as bringing a man and a woman together for family life and so on, or we're going to call it bigoted and irrational and prejudicial and do everything we can to marginalize it from polite society. Um, There's just two ways about it. And what you're talking about is is part of one of the basic tools in the draw of uh, those who are promoting gay marriage. And I would point to, for example, Margaret Marshall, who was the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court judge who wrote the majority decision in the Goodrich case. She she spoke in publicly. I actually attended an event where she spoke, where she she compared the lack of gay marriage to chattel slavery. She compared herself to... Theodore Weld, who was a uh, Supreme Court justice in Massachusetts in the late 19th, 18th century who abolished slavery in our state. 
I mean, this is well, part of their, uh, yeah, it's amazing. This is Barney Frank. Congressman Frank had an article on his website back in the year, he, he had it removed, where he compared a law in Texas that uh, banned sodomy to uh, the Dred Scott decision. And he compared the overturning of that law by the Supreme Court to the Emancipation Proclamation. So, you know, this is a part of their basic um, tool, tool draw, so to speak. I mean, which, by the way, I think is extremely insulting to African Americans and to the history of real slavery where people were brought to this country in chains. I mean, gay people generally, no one is interfering with their, their ability to uh, conduct their relationships. And by the way, I mean, I think that, again, this is getting into a, a social question. Uh, gay, the gay community in the United States generally is of a higher economic strata than than most other communities. We're not talking here about people who are dealing with some kind of uh, oppression. Well, I think we just have to see that kind of language for what it is, which is basically an intimidation tactic. And it's basically saying we're going to bully you into silence about this issue, and then we're going to declare victory. And the only right. way that that kind of campaign works is if the people who have this view of marriage let it work. You know, if we, if we go silent, as some of the members of Congress have been doing recently who hold the traditional view, if we uh, give up on the issue, then absolutely they're going to win and they're going to be able to declare victory by forfeiture on our side. But if mm -hmm. we stand up for these truths, you know, with confidence but with love, saying that this isn't about demeaning anybody, it's not about keeping anybody separate or, or down socially, but about supporting an ideal and a vision that's good for children and therefore good for everybody, then I think the terms of the debate are really going to change. Well, well Sharif, we're, really, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I want to ask you very specifically, exactly what is it that you are advocating here at the Love and Fidelity Network from a political standpoint? How do you address the fact that um, we now have thousands of recognized legal gay marriages, so-called, in this country? I mean, are you suggesting that that be somehow undone? What are you advocating as a uh, as a political matter going forward, um, you know, in this country? Well, the Love and Fidelity Network itself is, is going to be focused on a lot of different fronts because it's about it's mainly an intercollegiate institutions. It's focused on bringing, you know, a different vision and a different voice to many different campuses on marriage issues, but also on, you know, issues like promiscuity and kind of personal conduct type issues, you know, w w with a, a positive vision rather than any kind of legal remedy. But in terms of the, the marriage debate, I think that uh, absolutely, you know, there are no permanent political victories and there are no permanent political defeats. And this is an issue that in a way is just getting started. Forty years ago, when uh, the Supreme Court came down with Roe v. Wade, the New York Times declared the next day, in a moment of a absurd elite hubris, Supreme Court settles the abortion issue. Right. They thought that was it. They were done. They had won. Uh, you know, the old people were the only pro-lifers. Pro-life position was dying out, and it was just a matter of months or years. Well, we, we know exactly how wrong that was. And uh, I hope that this issue does not get settled by the court so that it can be settled in a more you know, kind of democratic way, a way that's more accountable right. to the people. But absolutely, I think our goal should be to restore a vision of marriage across the board. And that doesn't just mean, you know, coming back to recognizing man, woman in the nine states that recognize uh, otherwise. It also means, again, starting to take a hard look at 
this stuff that will put pressure on everybody. You know, we're not just asking one group to bear the sacrifice here, uh, but things like no-fault divorce and things like positive, you know, public education campaigns to promote marriage is the best way uh, to look out for you, your your spouse, and or your, your significant other and your children, uh, and really a whole positive vision that will include a policy vision uh, for promoting stable families. Well, I mean, but but I think that what's happening is that the uh, judiciary is deciding this issue. They have already done so. Uh, the Supreme Court now has two cases in front of it which are directly related to gay marriage, so that they are going to decide the issue. And if, if they don't do it now, they'll do it eventually because the pro-gay marriage movement totally views the use of our judiciary as the means forward rather than going through a more democratic approach, which would be uh, legislatures uh, where we elect people to make these decisions. So they are going to do it through the courts. They have done it through the courts. And uh, so my question to you, Sharif, is what do we do? Should we, yeah, well, I mean, I, I you know, Roe versus so Wade at this point, you know, even though we oppose it, it is settled law in this country. That's right, and of course, you know, judicial decisions too are not permanent, uh, and that one, in fact, has at several points been fragile, and I hope will be fragile again, but, but I wouldn't even give up on, on this one judicially just yet, because the court is also sensitive in its own way to social trends. In fact, it doesn't want another row. You know, one of the biggest champions of row on the court, if not the biggest, is uh, Justice Ginsburg, has herself said in a recent interview, we did it wrong in that case. You know, we should have waited for states to liberalize a bit more on their own because we created the backlash and we gave fuel to the pro-life movement. So I, I think if the court sees that this is not a settled issue yet, that this is not something where the traditional view is just kind of giving up and putting its hands up in the air, if people are moving on this issue, uh, then I think it'll actually give the court pause as well. And we have a special opportunity in the next couple of months with oral arguments in March, uh, a decision coming down in June, uh, to really uh, set the public stage for the court to, to back down from this. There are a million and one ways that they could do it without setting back or uh, advancing either side of the issue. And I think, um, you know, they might be responding to social pressures when they make that call. Well, well, I mean, Ginsburg made those comments about Roe versus Wade under the assumption that uh, abortion would become more accepted, which it hasn't. But um, what do we do, Sharif, if the Supreme Court does declare gay marriage nationally as a legal institution? Where, where well, are you going to go with that? I, I think, you know, people have talked about the marriage amendment a couple of years ago. It didn't have the support it needed. I think one... Uh, a kind of amendment that would have uh, support, and especially after that kind of decision, is an amendment that simply said, we're going to send marriage back to the states. Now, that would immediately overturn the Supreme Court's decision. It would, it would in a way, it would, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily advance the, uh, it wouldn't necessarily uh, be uh, repugnant to people who support it. You can imagine conservative supporters of same-sex marriage saying, you know, absolutely, actually, it's better for same-sex couples if this issue gets decided by the people because, after all, marriage is about social acceptance and so on. So I think right. you could get support for that kind of amendment. And I think that if the court did something that outrageous, if it usurped its, uh, you know, the authority of the legislator that much, that there might actually be uh, social momentum for just that kind of change could be although i think the trend is toward more and more people either accepting gay marriage as evidenced by this last election where gay marriage was voted by a majority in three states 
or it is being viewed by a lot of people as something that they just don't want to think about. People turn their they look askance. They look they they turn their their backs and they just move on and they accept that this is something that you've got some very very determined people here who are going to make this happen come hook or crook. And a lot yeah. of people just uh, they turn off to it because they don't view it as something that, that they're going to win. But anyway, Sharif, where can people read your excellent report? Let let our listeners know that. Sure. We well, actually, we just came out with a very general and accessible book called What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. And it's available on Amazon. It's only 10 bucks. there. Uh, we tried to make it accessible to as many people as possible precisely to avoid that thing, to avoid having people who are, uh, have the traditional view on this, know where their intuitions are, but are just intimidated to speak out on them. This book is exactly meant to, to equip them, and in particular to highlight the contradiction in the other side's argument that nobody is talking about. So what is marriage, man and woman, a defense? Okay, great. Sharif Gurgis is the author of What is Marriage, available on Amazon.com. Sharif, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. This is great. Okay. And uh, and Mike, um, we uh, I, I think we're going to be off next week because of the Christmas holiday. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I'll be uh, I'll be uh, tied up no, next week and the week after being, uh, being uh, January first. So that particular Tuesday I'll be unavailable also for these two right. weeks. Right. I mean it's kind of a time it's it's kind of a downtime for talk radio anyways, and um, mm-hmm. I'm going to be probably taking some time off at that time. So. Um, but I, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas, and I want to wish uh, all of your uh, family and friends a, a Merry Christmas as well. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, and all of our listeners. Anyway, Mike, thanks so much for joining me, as always. You're welcome. And uh, we <laughs> shall return on this program, this being me, Chuck Morse, and my guest tomorrow at noon. Uh, check out the blog site, which is... Uh, Chuck Moore Speaks, and uh, on that site you can order my book online, which is a The Monkey Trial um, and uh, post, uh, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. It's only $3.75. It's a pretty big book. 